You are listening to Ayahuasca Talks on Radio Regent in lovely downtown Toronto, and I'm your host, Rebecca Hayden. Please visit us at radioregent.com and join our live chat, or connect with me at rebeccahayden.com. Hello there, everyone. We have a guest today, Carlos Tanner, and he is the director of the Ayahuasca Foundation in Iquitos, Peru. Hello, Carlos. Are you there? Yeah. Hi, Rebecca. How are you doing today? I am good, thanks. How are you? Very good. Excellent. So, um, <clears throat> one of the things that uh, I like to ask our guests to do, just in case there are any listeners out there that don't yet know what ayahuasca is, and I do this just for fun, it doesn't have to be a highly scientific explanation, I'd like you to tell us in your own words... What is ayahuasca? Oh, man. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Did I catch you off guard? <laughs> no. Um, it's simply put, ayahuasca is the name of a vine, Ranisteriopsis capi, and um, that vine is used as the main ingredient of a medicinal brew that's called ayahuasca also um, among a numerous set of indigenous names for that particular vine and that particular medicine made from that vine. And then typically that vine would have an admixture plant, um, most commonly would be Chacruna or Psychotria viridis. Um, there's a few other common admixture plants and scientifically or chemically speaking, the scientific understanding of the medicine is that it contains two basic uh, active ingredients. One would be dimethyltryptamine, which would be found in the chacuna or the psychotriveritis plant, and the other one would be uh, a group of what are categorized as MAOIs or monoamine oxidase inhibitors. Technically, I think they would be harmine and tetraharmine and harmaline, and those are found in the ayahuasca vine. And so the classic scientific understanding of how the experience that is produced by ayahuasca occurs is that it would be a dimethyltryptamine experience potentiated by the reduction of the enzyme monoamine oxidase in the gut that would allow the dimethyltryptamine to pass to the brain without being metabolized as to why dimethyltryptamine produces that experience. I don't think science really has that answer. And to be honest, I really think that science has only gotten a piece of that to understand the uh, entirety of the ayahuasca experience. But this medicine forms the heart of the majority of healing practices in the Amazon region, a science of medicine that's developed for thousands of years, commonly called coranderismo. And ayahuasca is such an integral part of that tradition because it allows entrance into a spiritual dimension and thus allows communication uh, with ancestral wisdom or literally the spirits of ancestors, the spirits of plants and the spirits of animals who all serve as guides and teachers for the coranderos or the shaman, as well as the people in as patients. Um, who partake in ceremonies and ingest the ayahuasca and have spiritual experiences that provide them 
connection to directly to spirit and the information they can receive through those experiences and by way of that guidance can be tremendously beneficial for them to understand the roots of their own illness and the path towards healing well, any condition that they might have. I think that's uh, the most thorough answer that <laughs> I've received on this show so far. <laughs> so congratulations. Um, it, it, you did go into the science, even though I, I don't always expect a scientific answer. Um, but I, I think you hinted, and I, I agree with you, that science can only go so far in understanding this experience because um, it is just it's really complex. And, and I think that it, a lot of it does go beyond our abilities to understand, but of course, there's there's nothing wrong with trying. <laughs> um, but anyway, um, let's get into your story. Please um, tell us what what brought you to the medicine. Um, well, probably I've you know I've thought a lot about when it really started for me, and I think it was probably when the movie Return of the Jedi came out. If I could like plant the very first seed because I think that was my first interaction or uh, awareness that of what a shaman was, um, thanks to George Lucas's portrayal of Ewoks, um, those little fuzzy guys in, in the Return of the Jedi movie, and there were, they had shamans, and um, you could buy little figurines, and my favorite one was definitely like the shaman Ewok out of all the figurines. Um, and I don't know, <laughs> if that's really where it started, but I definitely had an interest in shamanism and an interest in indigenous culture and an interest in plants and being in nature from a very young age. And I was lucky enough to have like the right people influence me in wonderful ways to be able to share wisdom with me along my development just in early youth um, I simply spending time in nature with people that also had a similar appreciation for it. And when I got to college, I really started uh, experimenting with psychedelics. And I guess that kind of went hand in hand with further interest in shamanism. And somehow stumbled across like information about ayahuasca, and it was really uh, super interesting to me. I was kind of studying medicinal plants on my own, compiling data uh, that I kept in this uh, file cabinet in my house just for my own personal interest. And along the way, I came across ayahuasca. That really piqued my interest, and I really wanted to experiment with it. Um, when I got out of college, I actually had like a success story, at least a bit of a condition to have, I got a job at a newspaper. I was an art major, so I got a job as a graphic artist and uh, worked my way up to becoming the production manager of an alternative news weekly. I made paper every week, and it was pretty much like my dream job, or at least at the, at before having it, I felt like that was the, the job in my town. That would be okay, the best job to have. Carlos, I'm so sorry to interrupt. Um, I'm going to recommend that you go back to the, the phone away from the headset just to see if we can hear you a little more clearly, and we'll get right back to that story. Can you do that? Does that sound better? Yeah, does that sound better? Um, well, let's proceed, and, and we'll see. 
Okay, so you're... I'll try to sum up. I'll try to sum up, too. I, I kind of like, um, went way, way back. That's but, okay. Uh, uh, Carlos is joining us from Iquitos, Peru, so, you know, we're getting pretty good sound, all things considered, but go ahead, and we'll see how this does. Hopefully, hopefully it'll come out better now. There um, we go. Perfect. So I ended up getting a, a career job, and I was very conditioned to believe that that's exactly what you're supposed to do. I had a good salary. I lived in a beautiful house. I drove a nice car. I, had, I was, like, checking off all the boxes of what I had learned that success meant, and for the most part, it meant a lot of material things that you acquired, and a lot of that re relied on the money that you made, and that's why a career job was kind of the central focus of success, the way I had been conditioned, and I think most people are conditioned in Western society to think that way. Absolutely. Um, but I was miserable. I began to become more and more miserable as my career went on, and I, I knew that I was miserable because... I was not able to follow what I felt was the guidance of the universe to lead me towards the next event in my life, the next turn on the path, the next whatever, and because I had my job, I had my career. So regardless of what the universe said, I had to go to work the next day. I had to do my job. And I knew that was the case, but I accepted it as the result of being successful. And so instead of quitting my job and trying to follow the omens or the guidance or the signs that I was feeling the universe send to me, I instead tried to blot out those messages and dull my senses to them by using drugs and alcohol so that I could basically tolerate my success. And honestly, I was, my condition was so strong that I really just felt like that is what you do. Like, you have success, and by gaining success, you have to give up the adventurous aspects of your life that made it so fun and interesting when you were younger, but that's just what happens when you get older, and so you end up then drinking and, you know, doing things to dull those senses down so that you can tolerate success. My drug addiction ended up turning into an opiate addiction, kind of the perfect uh, duller or numb uh way to numb yourself and using heroin and oxycontin and you know anything I could get my hands on really and my life kind of started downward and even though I had this great job and I still you know continue to have my career decaying from the inside out and so I ended up going out one night uh, to a bar getting drunk and using drugs and getting behind the wheel of my car at the end of the night and then waking up in my car underwater. I had blacked out behind the wheel and somehow driven my car off the road. Actually, crazy trail that I retraced. It wasn't just like the river on the side of the road. I drove all over the place off the road until eventually I ended up in the river. My car was totally sank under the water. I was able to luckily jump out the window and swim to shore. And that was a big wake-up call for me, and I really felt like if I didn't do something soon, I would die. And two weeks later, a friend of mine emailed me. She said she was in Iquitos, Peru, that she had met two men from Russia named Roman and Eugene, and that they knew a true corandero or a true shaman, and if I wanted to, I could come down and they would introduce me. And 
I felt that was a sign and that was, you know, doubly effective for me because I was, you know, kind of spiraling out of control trying to, to block out the signs and here was a sign that could possibly save my life. So I got on a plane and flew down to Iquitos, Peru in uh, June of 2013. Ended up having five ceremonies with a corandero named Don Juan Tangoa, and they were the most profound experiences of my life by far, and they drastically transformed my path in such a way that I ended up moving back to Peru in 2004, and I've lived here ever since. Wow, that's great. Can you tell us um, about those experiences with ayahuasca? What happened during the time you were in the medicine? Definitely. My first ceremony, um, you know, I wasn't on a retreat. I didn't have a center. There were no preparatory notes or suggestions given to me. Uh, I was really coming down to meet these two guys that knew a shaman and were, were, were going to take me there. Um, so, and I was a drug addict. So oh, goodness. I, were you still, so, you were still doing the opiates? and? Yes. So oh, I, goodness. I was taking drugs like every single day um, leading up to the ceremony um, because no one told me that I shouldn't do that. Right. Uh, and... Note to those listening, this is not a good idea. <laughs> I do not think it is a good idea. And hopefully this will explain why. Okay. Um, but so I went, in, I went into that ceremony, um, and I was nervous. I uh, never drunk ayahuasca before. Here I was in a country I didn't speak the language. Of course. I was like in the jungle with a man that I had never met. I just met him that day, and... Um, there were some other people, uh, all locals, like people coming in for the ceremony, and one of them was the chief of the Atwari tribe, uh, which I was told that he was the chief of the Atwari tribe, but he definitely did not look like a, just like a regular local person. He was a really um, awe-inspiring person to walk in and sit, and that made everything very, very real for me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, here was this indigenous chief in the ceremony sitting with this guy that I was about to sit with. So instantly my my faith in the Corandero was heightened ex- exceptionally by the presence of that man being there, as well as the other locals. I felt, you know, this guy isn't putting on a show or doing anything, you know, like touristy because there's no tourists here. And even the uh, indigenous, like straight-up indigenous chiefs are here. So that meant a lot to me, and I think that helped to boost my faith in not only him, but the medicine itself. So when we drank ayahuasca, um, I, right off the bat, had a tremendously profound experience with, uh, that my first vision was of an octopus that um, spun, like floating in front of my face, and we had this brief communication where I was trying to decide if it was okay, like if it had good intentions. And once I did decide that, it came onto my head and laid 50 octopus eggs into my head. And that was the very first vision that <laughs> I ever had. Um, but then I started getting terribly sick. I threw up probably like 15 times. And we were not in, like we did not have mattresses. 
this is just like a dirt floor hut. Um, there were no pockets, so you just had to go outside. There were no bathrooms, so you also just had to go outside. Mm. And um, yeah, so I threw up many, many times. I crapped my pants. I had diarrhea numerous times, and it was very unpleasant in that regard. Wow. And the visions began to really frighten me. I began to see um, people transforming into demons and um, people like stealing my money, and, and I couldn't really differentiate between what the religion was and what wasn't. And, right. Um, so at a certain point, I was curled up in a fetal position outside of the family, just laying in the grass, crying, wondering why the hell I wanted to do this. And the Atwari chief came out, um, and he just, I watched him, you know, he walked out, threw up, and then turned around and walked back in, just like a true warrior. And uh, he looked over at me, curled up in the ball, and he just gave him this motion with his hand to come back inside. And that, again, was like really meaningful for me to get my shit together, you know, pull myself together, and, and, and get back inside, and... You know, be a man. <laughs> so, so he inspired you. Yeah. And that was really helpful. And I point those things out because in analyzing them and looking back, I think they're really important. Uh, so at the end of that ceremony, we did, I did talk um, with the Corn Barrow about my experiences. And, um, you know, and then I talked like, the whole night. I didn't sleep the whole last night. I just talked the whole night about my experiences with my friend and the other two uh, guys from Russia who had introduced me, um, and Eugene were their name. And, um, and I wasn't sure if I was going to do it again. Like, I, it was really rough. But as I began to think about my experiences, and especially by hearing other people who didn't go through that, I could see that it was really mostly probably me that made it the way that it was. So my drug use was making it so physically difficult on me, and my fear was making it psychologically so difficult for me. So I decided to go into the next ceremony, but this time I would have a mantra that I was not going to be afraid. Your your mantra was, I'm sorry, can you repeat that? Your mantra was? Not be afraid. Don't be afraid, yeah. I won't be afraid. So I went into the second ceremony. The very first vision I had was a man who twisted his eye around and started transforming into a demon right in front of me. And I just said, I'm not going to be afraid. And then he just transformed back. And then smiled and became this really happy person and showed me all these wonderful little kind of creatures that all expressed aspects of, it seemed like, uh, complex physics. I don't really know how to describe it, but they all had a, some special gift to share. And it was all fantastic. And that was the result of me not being afraid. And so any time I would begin to be afraid, I would just kind of declare that I was not going to be afraid. And it had such a potent difference on my experience. Demons and angels were really the difference for me was how I viewed them, whether I viewed them with love or with fear. If 
same thing, but yet my perception of them was so incredibly powerful in how I interpreted them. Wow. And that was a huge lesson for me. Oh, of course, and yeah. At some point during the second ceremony, I felt a hand on my shoulder. I looked over with my eyes open because I felt it on my shoulder, just like someone had, you know, was, was wanting to get my attention or something. But it was the hand of a spirit attached to the body of a spirit, a full man standing next to me, a uh, state of, you know, glowing light. And I was looking at him like, oh my gosh, this looks so real. Right at that moment, my friend called over to me and said, Carlos, I'm looking over at you, and it looks like there's a man standing right next to you. <laughs> and I said, I know, I'm, I'm looking at him. And at which point I realized, you know, this is real. Yeah. You can't see my imagination, like my vision. If this is in my head, how can she see it? So I put my hand out, and I shook his hand. I asked him what his name was. And as soon as he told me, I recognized who it was, which was someone who had been a big influence on my life when I was younger. Um, my godmother's son, he was 10 years older than me, and he would bring me fishing. The two of us would go fishing together and early in the morning go into the woods, and, you know, he really kind of instilled in me this you know, love for nature and awe for its serenity and tranquility. And he had committed suicide that year. I hadn't seen him in over 15 years, probably, uh, simply because the age gap and he had gone off to college and joined the military and everything. But through my mother, because it was my godmother, she uh, she told me, you know, but I wasn't looking for him. I wasn't thinking about him, but yet here he was. Wow. Um, this other person in the ceremony could see him, <laughs> which made it so real for me, so... Uh, I did speak to him, and hilariously, I asked him if he needed my help, uh, because I remembered quickly when I recognized him that he had committed suicide, and I remembered something from somewhere that if you commit suicide, you're stuck in purgatory, and your um, your soul has to be saved. So I asked him if he needed my help. He thought that was hilarious, and <laughs> told me that no, that I needed his help. And he was just to really support me, um, which also made me feel like this was a big event. It was a special event for me. And um, and so when I went into the third ceremony, not only did I know that I wasn't going to be afraid, but I also knew that spirits are real. Right. Concrete real. If you can, they can touch you, you can feel them, you can see them with your eyes open. This is not... Uh, some idea or concept this is just as real as sitting on a chair, lying on a bed, or walking down the street. Spirits are real. And that combination of not having fear and believing 100% in spirits, I think, is what made my third ceremony so incredibly powerful. Uh, my third ceremony, I realized, uh, or I found in my visions that I had a root coming out of my stomach that went down into the earth, I decided to follow that line. I followed it down to the earth, side of the earth, out into outer space, where there was this pterodactyl holding onto it uh, in outer space, which I proceeded to destroy and quickly interpreted that that was at the heart of my addiction. It was something that was stealing my energy and controlling my mind in, in a certain way, and so it felt really sad 
have to do the, that down to receive a healing from the Coranderos, he told me that I had the potential to be a healer, and he invited me to live with him as his student, and that he would teach me. In trying to decide if that was what I was going to do, I began thinking about who I was, uh, you know, my, my life, and my mother was a nurse. She was a nurse for 40 years. She was a caretaker, basically, and my father was a inventor and uh, to this day still. So he was like a visionary. Uh, he could see things that had yet to be. And I was the son of this couple. So in my mind, I put it together that I was like a visionary character. And that was perfect. That's great. That's just like a shaman. So I had that gone for me, I guess, from, from first. Mm-hmm. And then I looked around in the room, and even though it was very dark, I couldn't really see anyone. I knew they were there, and I thought, out of everyone here, I have the most potential to be a healer. And at that point, my arm got off the armrest of these kinds of tears were sitting in. I'm sorry, you're cutting out just a little bit. And I just put it back on the armrest, and I continued my thought process about this decision. Uh, the second part of my decision was about mechanics, so to speak, being a Corandero, I can tell it involved a lot of singing. On the Corandero, I was with playing a chakapa, a bundle of leaves, and he used as a rattle or as a percussion instrument. I, at that time, was playing percussion instrument with a DJ. Uh, I had written several songs and used to sing them while playing my drum. I enjoyed performing in front of people and did it often, so I felt like I almost just mechanics of what a Corandero does. Again, I had already gotten those skills down before even considering it. So I thought this was, you know, great. I've got that on too. And then again, I thought, I looked around at everyone in the, in the circle and I thought, yeah, out of everyone here, I have the potential to hear. And again, my arms went off the armor. But this time I recognized that it was the exact same thought that had caused my arm to jump off the other time. So I began to analyze the thoughts about the ego and how, you know, all my other thoughts were very effective. I was born to my mother and father. They were nurses, and I did play percussion. I was a seminar. I, you know, all of that was very objective. But then I had to say that I had most potential. I had to make a comparison with other people, and that was the ego. And so then I began to analyze the ego and how actually important the ego is Especially because I defeated that pterodactyl, and so it's like a giant, hideous dinosaur beast that was way more powerful than me. But I knew I could conquer it at the time, and that was the ego that was encouraging me to know how to accomplish my goals and overcome my obstacles. And yet, comparing myself to someone else was the ego also misbehaving, so to speak. And I began to think of the ego as like a dog, to keep as a pet that loves you unconditionally, but that you're the master for it to be trained and behave properly. And uh, I got all these insights into the ego, which were wonderful, and then I, to they kind of finished that thought, I looked all around at everyone, and I thought, out of everyone here, I have the biggest ego, 
And then everyone, and then my arm uh, on, the, on the armor jumped off again. The third time it did it, though, I really felt like someone was pushing it. And because of my experience the previous ceremony, I just for the sake of doing it, I decided I'm just going to look behind me to see maybe there is someone there. Sure enough, there was a man standing there. Sure enough, he was listening to my thoughts. He was pushing my arm off the arm. I had opportunity so that I would put my intention in the right place in this process to decide whether or not I was going to commit my life to being a healer and return to Peru to live with the Corandero and study the art of indigenous shamanism in the Amazon rainforest. So, um, looking with my eyes open, I had another spirit of and I already believe in the reality of this, so I put my hand out to ask him his name. He shook my hand and told me his name was Jesus. And I said, Jesus, like Jesus Christ. And he nodded, and then I shook his hand again. I said, it's a real pleasure to meet you. I've heard a lot of good things about you. I was never confirmed. I was baptized Christian, but I didn't go to church, so I was never really... Uh, a religious person, but I was not shaking hands with Jesus Christ, um, and that certainly didn't make me a Christian or anything, but it definitely made me uh, think twice about my beliefs in Jesus Christ, at least. Uh, and then he didn't, he didn't tell me anything. He wasn't, like, trying to push me one way or the other directly, I guess. Um, after I shook hands with him, he just put... Uh, his hand up, kind of like to say bye or good or hello or, or something, and, and then just kind of faded away. But I had already gone through that process, uh, analyzing my life and who I was and, and having that experience, and I just interpreted that Jesus Christ doesn't come while you're trying to decide if you're going to dedicate your life to become a healer to say, no, don't do it. Um, I assumed that he was on the affirmative end of that uh, decision that I should do it. So at that point, I decided, I'm going to do this. I told the partner after the ceremony that I would accept his offer. I needed to go back to the U.S., um, wrap up some of my life there, and then I would come back at the end of the year to begin an apprenticeship with him. And... That was all set. I did the two more ceremonies. The post ceremony was incredibly powerful for me because at that point, not only did I know not to be afraid, not only did I know that spirits were real, but now I also knew that I was destined to be a healer. Therefore, I really was a healer, and so I was committed that that ceremony I would heal myself. I had some physical illnesses that doctors couldn't really diagnose, as well as drug addiction and as well as a lot of other stuff that most people have going on. And that ceremony, I was able to heal myself in the fourth ceremony. And I do think that that was a progression of beliefs and affirmations and trust and faith that developed in a very, very quick way for me. And so by the fifth ceremony, I was out working to heal other people. I was started studying, I was learning Nikolos and um, learning how to use tobacco and soap line. I was jumping right in, but I was going to be going home afterwards, and I did. And on the way home, flying back to the U.S., 
I am thinking about all the things I needed to do to wrap up my life. At the time, I was living with my girlfriend. I had a house. I had a car. I had a career. I had, you know, all this stuff. Now it's just going to say goodbye to all of this. So that I go to the jungle in the Amazon rainforest to become a shaman. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, it started to sound really crazy. And by the time I landed in the U.S., I decided that it really was crazy and changed my mind. And I thought, you know, it was a great experience, but I can't do that. I can't move down to Peru and live in the jungle with a shaman. That's crazy. So what uh, year was this? What year was this? This was 2003. 2003, Okay. So my friend picked me up at the airport, and um, I was going to spend the night in his apartment. And I live in western Massachusetts, so I was just going to spend the night in his apartment the next day, uh, take a train back to western Massachusetts, which was a few hours away. And he told me about this girl that he had met, that they had started dating while I was in Peru. He really wanted me to meet her that night. And I did not want to go out that night. I'd been in the jungle for the last five weeks. Um, I really didn't want to do anything much at all. Uh, but he really wanted me to meet this girl, so he asked if he could wake me up at four in the morning when they got back from the club so that <laughs> the meeting. And so I agreed to that. At four o'clock in the morning, uh, they woke me up. I met his friend, Catalina, and I apologized for not going to the club explaining that I just had Peru that day. And she said, you were in Peru? I have two friends in Peru. Maybe you met them. <laughs> and I'm thinking, you know, Peru is a pretty big place. Yeah. But before I could say anything, she just said, their names are Roman and Eugene. They're from Russia. <laughs> and those, of course, were the two Russians that had introduced me to the shaman. I had, I had lived in their house during that time. And, um, I said, yes, I, I actually lived in their house, and I spent my entire trip with them. Wow. And at which point she took my hand, and she looked me dead in the eye, and she said, I don't know what you're doing, but I know it's important, and no matter what anyone else thinks, you must do it. Wow. And I just looked up and said, thanks, <laughs> God, for sending that messenger to me to make sure that I stayed on the path that I needed to stay. So I flipped back the decision, the original decision to return to Peru. The next day, she and my friend broke up and um, they separated. They didn't see each other again for years. And I really feel like, you know, she was just there to deliver that message to me to make sure that I Kept on the path. path, In January, I moved down to Peru, and I moved into his house, and I lived with Don Juan Tangoa for four years. Uh, Together, we did start a small retreat program, and then in in 2008, I moved out of his house and started the Ayahuasca Foundation. Wow. That's quite a... That's quite a story. So, um, I I can relate to... uh, 
to this experience that a lot of people can. You have this deeply profound experience, and then you're coming back into a society that doesn't quite understand it, and you're starting to already talk yourself out of the fact that this even happened. <laughs> you know, <laughs> suddenly it gets relegated into a nice story. Could have even been a movie. You know, <laughs> you didn't really live it, but you were. Brought back into that reality by this woman, and so you just acted on it right away, did you? Totally. Well, I, you know, it didn't. It was kind of impossible for me to suggest that it wasn't outside of the normal realms of reality. And you know, we're so in Western society, our, our paradigm of reality is so based on materialism. Yeah. And yet I was having these spiritual experiences that were just not able to fit into that same reality. Mm-hmm. The reality of the jungle is quite different. It's, it's a much more spiritual paradigm. Yeah. And so having her meet me, there was no way I couldn't make coincidence. This <laughs> me flying back from a country of 18 million people to a country of 400 million people, and the very first person that I meet is best friends with the two random people <laughs> I met in the other country, you know, 5,000 miles away. Like, the likelihood of that happening was just insane. Like, yeah. it would never be, you could never convince me that that was just a random happen chance, like, oh, that was a coincidence. Right. Impossible. Absolutely impossible, and so that was the direct confirmation I needed to make sure that all the things and I learned, all the experiences I had, were also real. So I imagine there were a lot of people in your life back home that <clears throat> that had some difficulties with this. I mean, um, suddenly you're moving away. I mean, family and friends must have been. Um, how do they feel about all of that? How did they feel about it at the time, and how do they feel about it now? Um, you know, no one really knew the extent of my drug addiction. Uh, and I think that's probably pretty common. Um, you know, I had, like, circles of friends that would do particular substances with. So, you know, you have friends that you would do a particular types of drugs and then you just go to a different circle of friends and the circle of friends tended to not know each other and even if they did they knew not to talk about certain things with each other. Right. So no one really knew, you know, what was really going on in my life um, at all. Like no one except my girlfriend. And she uh, amazingly when I got back to my house had already moved out wow. and um, had gone together with my na- next-door neighbor, actually. And uh, that was kind of funny because I was, uh, like, on my way home, I'm I'm thinking, wow, this is going to be an interesting conversation where I tell my girlfriend that we're breaking up so that I can go be a shaman in the Arizona <laughs> forest. That's kind of a new one. Um, but... When I got there, there was a note saying, hey, I moved out two days ago, and um, I'm over at my my neighbor Jack's house. And so she was like, she didn't know, you know, what my plans were. So she was 
felt really guilty about it, but I felt so relieved about it. So again, I was just kind of like, oh, great, the universe, you know, just taking care of that for me. Yeah. um, And so she she really wasn't surprised. Um, She had already kind of planned that I wasn't coming back. And she, you know, she thought that I wanted I wasn't even going to come back home, that I was just going to stay there. Um, and that's why, you know, she kind of made her own arrangements with her own life to like, keep going. So, and so it wasn't a huge surprise to my to my closest friend that, that this is what I felt like I wanted to do. Hmm. Um, because they knew who I was. They knew that I had been interested in indigenous culture for a long time and especially with my plants and wasn't a huge surprise to them. I think the toughest one was just with my mother. Wow. Uh, my mother didn't really understand it. She really felt like I was running away. And that was harder for me to explain. But with my father, it was, uh, I, I felt such um, respect from him. He was being an inventor. He had been in a similar situation where he had ideas and people thought he was crazy mm-hmm. only to then have them see that not only was he not crazy, but he was really uh, insightful and knew what the future would hold. And so he could see, he could kind of like get it. Yeah. I was onto something that he couldn't understand and that most people in Western culture couldn't understand at that time right. that in the future that people would. Right. So he supported me from day one. And uh, that was really important that I had the support of at least one of my parents. And all the rest of my family, I have three brothers, they were all very supportive, although they were all living in different parts of the country, so we're not all like, uh, they're older than me, so at that time I was 29 years old. And so they were all in their 30s, and they were all, you know, had their families and careers in other places. So, so has your mom come around? Yeah, Say that again? Has your mom come around since then? Uh, oh, yeah. Well, luckily, ayahuasca works in such a wonderful way that the proof is in the pudding, you know, so... You can think whatever you want about a person going down to drink ayahuasca or to work with medicinal plants and ayahuasca. Um, but the results are very difficult to disagree with. Right. And when, when someone is healed, when, when their lives are transformed, then that's the fact. Yeah. And whatever you thought about the process beforehand, it, you might have to reevaluate based on the evidence. And right. You know, you can think like, oh, doing ayahuasca is just like doing any other drug or whatever you want to think until that person who goes to do it has been struggling for the last 25 years with health issues or psychological or traumatic issues or any of the stuff that people have when they come to use ayahuasca as a medicine. And they come back from their experience and after 25 years of struggling, they now have overcome that issue mm-hmm. and are now healed, then what do you say? You know, you, you have no choice but to accept it as 
the reality of how indigenous people discuss it and the reality of most likely how that person themselves describes it, uh, which is an incredibly powerful medicine for which we're all tremendously grateful. Sure. And the tradition itself of Corinda Reasonal, which is so immensely fantastic and with which the medicine ayahuasca would really be nothing without the tradition of its use. And so together with the tradition of use of shamanism and uh, it, yeah, the level of gratitude that we have towards the indigenous people of the Amazon for keeping that tradition intact when almost all the shamanic cultures throughout the world have been lost or deteriorated from another percent. Right. Yeah, we've had this. Yeah, we've talked about this a lot on the show before, and you know what? What I like to point out is that all of us are from some ancient culture. Every single one of us, originally. So you know, there are some traditions of ours that were lost along the way, and uh, now ayahuasca is making its way around the world and reminding us of that connection. Because no matter what our original medicine was or traditions were, I, I think that many people who have done these kinds of studies have realized that um, essentially there was always a way to connect with a higher form of consciousness. You know. And this one particular higher form of consciousness is helping us to, to mend things in tremendous ways. Um, so I, I wanted to ask if you could tell the story about how you met your um, your wife, your your current partner, and and um, some of the experiences you had with ayahuasca, where you were able to to have some idea about the the future you were going to have with her. I thought that was a beautiful story and and well worth sharing. Sure. Um, well, I had, like I said, I was living with my my Kulubi, my first teacher, and um, I lived with him for three years. And that fourth year, I was each year I would go home for Christmas. So you know, I go home and Christmas. But this year, I just didn't have the money to travel back. Before my 
her. And we just hit off. We, um, we didn't have any pressure. We weren't, like, dating or anything. She was going to take a class dancing one night with her friends. So there was no real pressure or anything. And I think that made it real comfortable for us. And right off the bat, we had very similar sense of humor, and we just got along real well. Uh, my friends and uh, us getting food poisoning. And we had close friendship So just to make this clear, this is before you had kids. This was you didn't have kids in in reality at that point. That's right. We were okay. just dating. I'd just been dating her for about eight months at that point. But I was looking to see what I was of our relationship, and the message and the vision definitely seemed to imply that this woman was going to be the mother of two children that we would share together. And so I had so much faith in the vision that I just asked her to marry me right there in the ceremony. Wow. Which she said yes, even though later on the next day she would make sure that I knew what I was asking, <laughs> and that I wasn't so high or mariado as to not really know what I was doing, but I did know what I was doing. And then from then on, uh, I began seeing visions of my children who had yet to be born in every ceremony I would have. So I would see mostly my daughter, and then if she was old enough, um, you know, over four, around four years old, then I would see my son also. But I never saw my son old enough for me to play with him mm. um, or talk with him. He was never, like, more than two years old in my vision. Whereas my daughter would sometimes be six years old, and, and so we would play hide and seek and uh, have conversations. And in ceremonies, you know, I was playing with the spirit of my daughter at like, every ceremony. Uh, and then when my wife got pregnant, I knew that it was a girl. And of course, it was a girl. And, and yeah, so I, I got a chance to really see like, the next few steps in my life ahead of time. And that made moving forward and progressing on those steps much easier for me and again filled with confidence and faith and trust. And so, yeah, now my wife and I have a daughter. She just turned three. And, uh, you know, now we're talking about 
Yeah, well, may as well get working on it, right? <laughs> so um, this girl that you played with in your visions, did she look like your daughter does now? Not quite. Really? It's funny that you say that. Um, in my vision, my daughter seemed to have much curlier hair. Wow. my current daughter. And I don't... That's really interesting. What that is or what that means or if it means anything at all. Yeah, but, I don't uh, know either. That's exactly what she did in, in, uh, in my vision. Um, I had... Um, I'm not totally fine with that. consistent though it was this definitely the same figure showed up it's just that she doesn't look like your daughter does now right um, wow she does look a lot like um the the face and everything looks very similar certainly her hair that was oh yeah because i had an experience where i talked to my son when he was like 20 and right now he's eight and this was a while back and um and I was curious because I wonder if he's really going to look like that, you know. But obviously that's not as important as the message and, and all the rest of it. But, yeah, I find that to be really astonishingly fascinating, right? <laughs> so tell me something. At one point in my vision, I thought, I'm going to ask her what her name is. Oh, really? So, you know, maybe she'll just tell me and then I'll know what to name her. <laughs> and so I said, what's your name? And she looked at me like, are you crazy? <laughs> like, I, I, like, and, and I, in my mind, I remember thinking, like, maybe she doesn't know her name, or maybe she thinks I'm just a horrible father for having to ask my own daughter her name. So <laughs> I never asked it again, but she did not tell me her name. So she had to just come up with the name on her own. Wow. Okay, so this is this brings up yet another question, just purely out of curiosity. This spirit that showed up with one one of your earlier experiences, someone you actually knew in life, did he look a lot like that guy, or you just knew who he was because you sensed it? The guy who had um, ended his life. Right. What was the question? About? Did he look? Did, I, did, I, did he look a lot like the person that you knew in your life? Oh no! Instantly, yeah. I mean, it was it was challenging for me because when he was sixteen or seventeen, I guess he, um, you know, he went off to college, and so I hadn't seen him uh, since he was a teenager. Was the last time I saw him, and you know, now he is definitely like in his thirties, and so. I, it wasn't like that easy, but once he said his name, then I looked at his face and you know, instantly recognized him. I usually recognized him. Right. But I do think I would have recognized him had I seen him like as a full grown man. It had been, you know, it had been. 
been decades really since I had actually seen him in person because I was you know, I was like eight years old when he went off to college and then after college he went into the military and then he ended up living in California and so I just never saw him after that. Right. I think that there's a lot when when it comes to these things um, and the, the experiences that we have with medicines, things that uh, a lot of us have learned is that so much of it is sensing, too. We, we tend to downplay that ability of ours, but eventually we realize that we rely so much on the visual, but a lot of it is this knowing that, that we have. You know who it is. Like, I met my grandmother, who I'd I'd never met in real life um, when I was when I did Iboga, and I was an infant when she died. <clears throat> but <clears throat> and as soon as she said to me in in a vision, she said, "I'll bet you don't know who I am." And instantly, I knew who she was. Of course, she was standing beside my mother. Kind of gave it away. But there is this knowing that we have, you know, and tapping into that is is pretty amazing too. <clears throat> is that something you find as well? Yeah. I mean, we have words for it. We call it intuition. I think it's probably the most popular word. But I think that consciousness as a whole is just just a vast ocean so deep there's no end to the depth of what it contains and what we can learn. And for the most part, we're all just kind of snorkelers. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I think I have what what pages at least through the paint. You know, it at least allows us to go down deeper and really even though we might not be able to get all the way down there, it's still much more of the depth available to us through medicines like ayahuasca and just the typical surgery that's amazing um so we're coming to the end of the show now thank you so much for joining us today and i'm, I'm sure we'll connect again and thanks for sharing your story so generously i really enjoyed it no worries thank you for having me i really hope that the sounds worked out it is a little bit troubling here sometimes with our phone service, but I hope that uh, everything worked out for you guys and the listeners. Well, I have recorded it, so we're going to see. I, I certainly picked up a lot of great stuff from your story, and um, thank you again. Maybe you'll join us again. Take care. Okay. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye. You are listening to Ayahuasca Talks on Radio Regent in lovely downtown Toronto, and I'm your host, Rebecca Hayden. Please visit us at radioregent.com and join our live chat or connect with me at rebeccahayden.com.